If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can follow Germania Divided and United on Twitter and Instagram at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania Divided and United. Episode 1.22 The Lover of Peace and the Goths. Following the Battle of Adrianople in 378, the Gothic Confederation led by Fritigern controlled the Central Roman Empire on the Balkan Peninsula. By killing the Augustus Valens and destroying his Eastern Imperial Army, the Romans did not have the resources to quickly organize a new force to meet the Goths in the field. The Western Army was intended to reinforce the Eastern Army, not replace it, and at this point they retreated to Sirmium. The two sides settled into a stalemate, as the Romans could not put an army in the field capable of defeating the Goths, while the Goths were unable to lay siege to the fortified major cities in the region. With the teenage Gratian, the only emperor left, the Romans needed new leadership to address the crisis in the Balkans. Based on his military success against the Quadi and Sarmatians earlier in the decade, Theodosius was first given military command and then elevated as Emperor of the East in January 379. Before Theodosius could be elevated, however, Valens' war minister, Julius, executed on a policy that would make peace with the Goths much harder to achieve. As a standard part of previous treaties between the Romans and Goths, the children of high-status Goths had been sent to be educated by the Romans, serving as well-treated hostages. Most of these hostages were settled in the cities of Asia Minor. Following the Battle of Adrianople, the word around Constantinople was that these Gothic youths were perhaps a little too excited about this massive Roman defeat, and that they were not the loyal Roman subjects they were meant to be. With the Senate in Constantinople giving him the authority to take whatever action he felt necessary for the good of the empire, Julius sent word to the provincial capitals that these Gothic youths were to be assembled in the main marketplace of their cities and then massacred. While Julius was allotted in the east for this act of cruelty, it was for the best that he was passed over to rule in favor of Theodosius. Theodosius immediately began rebuilding the eastern legions. Now the three sources of troops available to him were, number one, recalled veterans, number two, fresh conscripts, and number three, barbarian mercenaries. Recalling retired veterans was easy enough, as part of their discharge required them to return when called. But the thing with retirees is, they are old and past their prime. Drafting fresh conscripts was easy enough in theory, as it could be ordered directly by Theodosius, but as mentioned before, Romans were not interested in the hard, violent life of the legions, and wealthy aristocrats would hide young men so that they would be available to work their estates, rather than being sent off to fight the wars. Whatever conscripts could be found were typically pretty unhappy to be drafted, and that kept morale low. As to the barbarian mercenaries, they just needed to be paid, but the fact that so many of these mercenaries recruited into the army over this period had been Goths reduced that avenue for recruitment as well. With these difficulties in forming new legions, the same dynamics continued to play out over the next few years. As the Romans could not beat the Goths in the field, 
and the Goths still did not have the ability to siege well-fortified cities, and so could not put down firm roots in the territory they now occupied. Theodosius was still rebuilding the ability and confidence of his new legions, so he would not risk any open battle, and only engaged in minor skirmishes when his army had some clear advantages. Eventually, some of the Gothic nobles started to desert Fritigern in favor of making their own peace with Theodosius in exchange for gifts and honors. The stalemate in the Balkans was finally broken, thanks to Fritigern's old Tervingai rival, Athanaric. If you recall, while Fritigern had led some of the Tervingai across the Danube in 376, Athanaric had continued to resist the Hunnic migration west, and had primarily tried to hold up on the tough land up in the Carpathian Mountains. By the end of 380, he was exhausted and close to death, and wanted a chance to die in peace. Theodosius, realizing what a public relations coup this would be in his dealing with the Goths, was happy to accommodate him. Finally breaking the oath he had sworn to his father years earlier, the one that had forced Valens to meet with him on a makeshift bridge in the middle of the Danube to make a peace treaty in 369, Athanaric came to Constantinople and made a treaty with Theodosius, allowing the Goths still following him to come and settle into the empire. Upon first seeing the majesty of the great capital city, Athanaric is recorded as saying, Lo, now I see what I have often heard of with unbelieving ears. When Athanaric died in January of 381, he was given a huge state funeral and was memorialized with a public statue, and Theodosius himself walked before the funeral bier. Now, Fritigern had died sometime in 380, so the remaining bands and chiefs south of the Danube were slowly brought into alliance with Constantinople. Officially, a treaty between the two sides was formalized in 382. The Goths were provided lands in Thrace and Asia Minor, provided with grain and cattle to feed themselves, and were allowed to remain as an independent people living in Roman territory, who would fight for Rome under the leadership of the existing Gothic chiefs. Technically, this agreement represented a fotus, a treaty between the Romans and an allied state. Rome had used these fodera since the early days of the Republic, starting around 500 BC, to form alliances with states they recognized as equals or as subservient partners. The difference being that a fotus aquium was a defensive alignment that bound both parties to come to the aid of the other, while a fotus iniquum obligated the other party to provide soldiers whenever and wherever Rome requested, and more typically came around Roman plans for an offensive engagement. The agreement Theodosius made with the Goths was a fotus iniquum that required the Goths to provide him with troops when called upon. But from a historical standpoint, while Rome had been making these types of treaties for nearly 900 years, this was the first time Rome entered into a fotus with people residing within recognized Roman borders. Basically, the Goths were recognized as an independent nation within Rome. By this point, this was clearly the best arrangement for both sides, as continued conflict was too costly for everyone involved. Theodosius believed that the only way to ensure the future loyalty of the Goths was an arrangement that showed complete trust in the Gothic leaders, treating them more as allies than subjects. As Jordanus wrote, Theodosius was, quote, the lover of peace and the Gothic race, unquote. And it might have worked out long term if it weren't for the foolishness of Theodosius' successors. 
From his treaty with Athanaric in 380 until his death in 395, Theodosius remained a supporter of Gothic interests within the empire, and he could always count on Gothic military support when needed. Which was good for him, because while Theodosius provided stability to the Eastern Empire for a decade and a half, the Western Empire dealt with plenty of uncertainty. When the Emperor Julian had recaptured the city of Cologne in 356, many of the Frankish chiefs had made peace with the Romans, and were therefore not crushed during the Battle of Strasbourg the following year. This contingent was then settled south of the Lower Rhine, in the Flanders region of modern Belgium. They were known as the Salii, or the Salian Franks. As we discussed last week, when Gratian initially sent soldiers from Gaul west to support Valens against Fritigern, the Alemanni took advantage and invaded, forcing Gratian to recall the troops. Supposedly, one of Gratian's imperial guards was a native of one of the Alemannic bands, the Lintienses, and had let it slip that Gratian was going to lead his army out of the area. Taking advantage of the frozen Rhine River, the Lintienses invaded in February 378, led by their king, Priarius. After recalling his army, Gratian gave command to a Frankish officer named Malabotus. Malabotus had served in the Roman military for decades, and had actually been a supporter of Silvanus during his short revolt back in 355. Malabotus brought the Alamanni to battle at Colmar and defeated them, killing Priarius and sending the remnants of his army back to their homeland in the Black Forest. Malabotus led the Romans across the Rhine and blocked the passes into the hills of the territory in an attempt to starve them out. The Lentenses were finally forced to surrender and provide young men as recruits for the legions, under much the same terms as those following the Battle of Strasbourg 20 years earlier. Malabotus was given the title Alemannicus Maximus. While the rest of 378 saw a catastrophe at the Battle of Adrianople, Gratian's popularity was actually pretty high at this point. He was seen as having a milder temperament compared to his father, the victory at Colmar over the Alamanni reflected well on him, and the decision to elevate Theodosius was seen as wise and prudent. He was not blamed for the disasters in the Central Empire, and, more importantly, he was not expected to solve the Gothic problem. Over the next few years, however, Gratian developed his own barbarian problem. As noted last week, a confederation of Alans, Gritungai, and Huns were defeated by the Romans in Thrace in 377 and sent west. The Alans ended up serving as imperial bodyguards for Gratian following the tradition of trusting northern tribes not to be influenced by the politics of Rome. Apparently, Gratian took such a liking to these Alans that he began to dress in their manner, which was taken as an insult by the Roman soldiers and the other Germanic auxiliaries who supported him. The fact that other eastern tribes were still rampaging the central empire during this period cannot have helped matters. In 383, a leader of the Roman legions in Britannia went into revolt. Magnus Maximus was a Roman general from Hispania, who had grown up with the emperor Theodosius and claimed to be related to Theodosius the Elder. He invaded Gaul with the British legions and quickly won favor with the Gallic legions as well. After defeating a small force loyal to Gratian near Lutetia, Maximus's army captured the emperor as he fled to Lugdunum. Both Gratian and Malabotus were executed. Maximus set up his court in Augusta Trevorum, Trier, 
and petitioned for recognition from Theodosius. Theodosius was conflicted. Gratian had elevated him to his position, and he had loyally served his family for his entire career. Gratian's younger brother, Valentinian II, was now theoretically ruling from Milan, and needed some measure of protection from Maximus, as he was only 12 years old at this point. At the same time, Theodosius was not in a position to march west and impose his will, even with his recent treaty with the Goths. So an uneasy power-sharing agreement was made, with Theodosius ruling the central and eastern empire from Constantinople, Maximus ruling Gaul, Britannia, and Hispania, and the court of Valentinian II in Milan ruling Italia and Africa. Following the execution of Gratian and Malabotus, one of the senior western generals was named Arbogastes, an ethnic Frank who was the nephew of Flavius Ricomerus, the leader of Gratian's imperial guard who had been sent east to deal with the Gothic invasion. After surviving the Battle of Adrianople, Ricomerus continued to serve in the east, eventually becoming Magister Militum under Theodosius. Following Gratian's execution, Arbogastes fled to the court of Theodosius and served as one of his most trusted generals. Obviously, the power-sharing agreement was not going to last. In 387, Theodosius concluded a peace treaty with the Sassanid Empire in Persia, which freed up more soldiers to come west. In response to this news, Maximus and the Rhine legions crossed the Alps into the Po Valley, supported by Alamanni allies. Valentinian II fled Milan for the east and cemented an alliance with Theodosius by marrying his sister to the eastern Augustus. Theodosius then had Ricomerus and Arbogastes lead the eastern armies to depose Maximus, including the Gothic auxiliaries who were called up as part of their treaty agreement. In the summer of 388, the two sides met near the Save River outside of the modern city of Sicilia, Croatia. Maximus was defeated, and he retreated to Aquileia. Theodosius came personally to lead the siege of the city, and Maximus was betrayed by the city leadership and handed over. Theodosius then had him beheaded, and when Arbogastes led his own forces to Trier, the Frankish general strangled Maximus's eldest son, who had been named as Maximus's official heir. Passing of Maximus is noteworthy because, if you consider him a Western Roman Augustus, he was likely the last one to set foot in northern Gaul or Britannia. For the most part, the remaining Western emperors were all weak puppets who deferred all military command to their German generals. And with an unwillingness to directly support these northern territories, it was only a matter of time before Roman influence in those areas began to wane. Theodosius spent the next three years based in Milan, while Valentinian II set up a court near the modern city of Vienne in France. Theodosius was clearly the senior imperial colleague given the fact that he had to rescue Valentinian, and so he wanted to put someone in command that he knew he could trust. The role of Magister Militum of the West now fell to Arbogastes, and as the military commander he moved to the primary military base at Trier. The first issue that faced Arbogastes was dealing with some of his fellow Franks. Most of the Salian Franks had marched south as part of Maximus's army, leaving the frontier totally unguarded. The Franks from the Rhineland, called the Ripurian Franks, combined under the leadership of Ginobad, Marcomer, and Suno. 
The three are described by Gregory of Tours as the ducks, or military leaders, rather than kings, again suggesting the establishment of more temporary leaders for martial rather than political or social purposes. They launched their invasion and began to plunder the countryside. The Roman forces who remained in the area assembled and advanced on the Franks near Cologne, as they had begun to return home with their plunder. It is not clear if the Frankish army they encountered was on its way home or if it was a second wave that had come to plunder, but the Romans and Franks met near the Ardennes in modern Belgium, and the Franks were quickly defeated and scattered. The Roman forces followed up this victory by crossing the Rhine in a punitive campaign against the Franks, their standard operating procedure. The first communities they reached were mostly abandoned by this point, and so the Romans burned them to the ground. They assumed the Franks were all in flight, and that they would have an easy time dealing with any resistance. But the Franks remained united under their three ducks. They had strategically retreated to better terrain for a battle, and likely had armed every able-bodied man available to them to defend their homes. The Frank strategy combined the success factors of the Teutoburg Forest victory and the Gothic victory at Abritus. They had set up barricades on the edge of a wood farther to the east, from which they launched a surprise attack as the Romans tried to maneuver through the forest. They used the combination of the shelter from the trees and the makeshift barriers to shower arrows upon the Romans. At this stage, the Franks were likely fairly amateur archers, from the archaeological records, bows are more typically found among lower-class graves, as the higher-status Franks were found with swords, spears, armor, and other weapons. However, the purpose of the archery was not to kill or wound their opponent. The purpose was to create confusion and break up the army into smaller, disorganized detachments. With the arrows falling upon them, the Romans saw an opening in the barricades to break into some open field, where they could hopefully regroup. And that is when they learned that the open field was really a swampy marshland, and they immediately became stuck in the mud. At this point, they were massacred by the Franks, who were on more firm footing, and most of the officers were killed. It was not until nightfall that the Franks had to break off their offensive, and the remaining Romans retreated back towards the Rhine. Roman Gaul was now at the mercy of Markamer and Seno. Ginnabad disappears from the record and likely died during the fighting against the Romans. Despite their common heritage, Arbogastes had very little in common with these Frankish leaders, as he was descended from Laetai, who had settled in Gallic territory following some earlier peace treaty. From Gregory of Tours, we hear that Arbogastes pursued the Franks with heathenish hate. Looking to avoid the same fate as the earlier Roman army, Arbogastes hurried his men to Cologne in the late autumn or early winter of 388, crossing the Rhine while the woods were bare of leaves and could not easily conceal an enemy. Additionally, the dry winter air made it easy to set fire to any forests where someone might try to hide. At some point between 389 and 392, Arbogastes and the Roman official Eugenius made peace with the Ripurian Franks, including payment of gifts for future military service. By 392, Arbogastes needed more allies than enemies, as he found himself at the center of an imperial coup. So, following the defeat of Maximus in 388, nominal imperial authority was vested in Valentinian II. 
He was 17 at that point, so while young, it would be expected that he would start to exert more influence over governing the West. Arbogastes, as the Magister Militum, dealing with unruly Franks, had absolutely no time for this young, unproven aristocrat, and he continually ignored and openly defied Valentinian, going so far as to appoint his own ministers who would overrule the ministers appointed by the Augustus. At this point, Arbogastes was acting as the emperor of the Western Empire in all but name. And that was the best he could hope for, because as an ethnic Frank, he could never be named the true Augustus. In 392, the tension between Arbogastes and Valentinian came to a head. Valentinian flexed his imperial muscles by sending a letter to Trier, informing Arbogastes that he was dismissed from service. Arbogastes threw this letter in the trash. He had the backing of the army, he had the backing of Theodosius in the east, and he already had more support among the Romano-Gallic nobility. Valentinian had the support of no one. What was he going to do to make this little decree stick? There are conflicting opinions on what happened next. Well, not really on what happened, but who was behind it. Valentinian II was found dead, having hanged himself. Or, if you prefer, Valentinian II was found dead, having been hanged by agents of Arbogastes. I personally agree with the interpretation that Valentinian II, left isolated and powerless, took his own life. It doesn't really make sense that Arbogastes would want to eliminate Valentinian, as he had him completely dominated and was already ruling the Western Empire. And in the aftermath, Arbogastes did not quickly respond with a nominee to take over as the Western Augustus, which you would expect if he had planned on Valentinian falling out of the picture. However, one person who did not accept this explanation was the departed sister Gala, who was now married to Theodosius. I do not believe that any correspondence between Valentinian II and Gala survives, so it is not clear how much she knew about the power dynamics in the West, but she was sure that Arbogastes had murdered her brother. With all the uncertainty, Theodosius did not immediately organize an army to invade the West again, nor did he name a successor Western emperor. After some interregnum, Arbogastes eventually had the Roman Senate elevate his ally Eugenius as Western Augustus. Now, this is another one of those conflicts that we'll address in Season 2, but while a tentative peace held briefly between Theodosius in the East and Arbogastes in the West, the relationship eventually broke down. Partially, I'm sure, due to Gala advocating Theodosius revenging her brother, but also partly over the issue of religion. Theodosius was a devout Nicene Christian, and the Western leaders are often portrayed as pagans. But Arbogastes and Eugenius were not really pagans, they were both Christian. The issue was that they needed support and money from the senators in Rome. By this point, the conservative senatorial class was the only center of pagan belief left in Rome, holding on to the religious beliefs of their forefathers that they believed had made Rome great. So Arbogastes was willing to restore some of the privileges that the pagan temples had not enjoyed in decades in order to get the support that he needed. The conflict finally exploded in 394. Theodosius gathered the Eastern legions and his Gothic allies and headed west to meet the Romano-Gallic legions and their combination of Salian Frank, Ripurian Frank, and Alamanni auxiliaries. What would this titanic religious struggle bring? 
Could this be the death blow for pagan beliefs in the broader Roman Empire? Or will Arbogastes crush Nicene Christianity and relegate it to the dustbin of history? We'll find out next episode. But if you happen to attend a Christian church service between now and then and find yourself reciting the Nicene Creed, that may just spoil the answer. Thank you.